Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, I'm joined again with Dr. Richard Alston. On March 23rd, 2021, Professor Alston joined the show, and we had a conversation about the transition period when Rome went from a republic to an empire. On May 4th, 2021, Dr. Alston joined the show again, and we had a conversation on the life that Mark Antony lived. And then on June 16th, 2021, Dr. Alston joined the show again, and we had a conversation on Livia Augusta, who was the wife of the first emperor of Rome and the mother of the second emperor of Rome, so Octavian Augustus and Tiberius, respectively. In today's conversation, so Dr. Alston is back on the show, and we're going to have a conversation about Julius Caesar. And in specific, we're going to uh, focus the conversation for the most part on the early period of Julius Caesar's life. And in a moment, we'll speak about um, where we're creating that uh, line for the sake of the conversation today in, in, in defining the early period of his life. Dr. Alston is professor and head of the classics department at Royal Holloway, University of London, based in the UK. He has written many publications over his career, including authoring a couple books as examples. He's author of the book, Rome's Revolution, Death of the Republic and Birth of the Empire, which was published by Oxford University Press. And he's author of the book, Aspects of Roman History, 31 BC to AD 117, which was published by Routledge. And Dr. Alston joins the show today from the UK. Welcome back on the show, Richard. Thanks very much for having me again, Andrew. Yeah, it's great to uh, chat with you as usual, uh, Richard. Um, looking forward to the conversation today. So we're chatting uh, about the early period of Julius Caesar's life, and um, we chatted about this before. Uh, it's certainly an arbitrary type of um, item when you're defining anyone's early period of the life, but for the sake of publishing an episode that's under 60 minutes today, we had to draw the line uh, somewhere. Um, and so, uh, and I'm going to weave this into a, a question in, in, in a moment, but we talked about that line being really the start of the civil war between Julius Caesar and, and uh, Pompey as two predominant figures in that in that civil civil war. So to start off the conversation um, and to create sufficient background in, in, in context, can you share who Caesar Julius Caesar was? And uh, please uh, don't don't feel the need to de- demarcate the answer to just the early period of his life. But can you share who he was in summary? Um, and then we can and then we can kind of zero in more on that early period of his life and work in it, work our way into the details. Yeah, Julius Caesar is one of the most influential and important figures of the, the Roman Republic. And he's often seen as the person who brings the Roman Republic to an end. He's a general, he's a scholar, he's an orator, he's the conqueror of Gaul, he's left as accounts of his conquests, both in uh, Gaul and, and in the civil wars. And his main historical importance, I suppose, is the fact that he shifts Rome's trajectory from being a republic of uh, aristocrats who are fighting and competing to bringing all the power of Rome under his own control uh, during the civil war, after the civil war of uh, 49 to 45. So for the first part of his life, from around about 100 down to 49, he's living the life of a very successful, very powerful uh, Roman aristocratic figure, not enormously different from many others who preceded him. From 49, with the launch of the Civil War and then his uh, concentration of power upon himself, he becomes something that's really different. He becomes something that's much more like a monarch and lays the ground rules for the Caesars who follow him as the first Roman emperor. Okay. Thank you. So let's let's then work our way through some chronology then. So we'll start with uh, when and where uh, he was born. So what, what do scholars know about that? Uh, where and, and when he was born? 
He's born in 100, and he's born in the month that we call July, uh, though it wasn't called July at that point, um, and this is another significant part of Julius Caesar's legacy. The whole month of July is named after him by the Romans, and we've inherited that. So it's called Quintilis at this time. Not sure exactly where he is born, but he's born in, in central, central Italy uh, to an aristocratic family of quite some political importance. The families, uh, Rome has divided its aristocracy into two sorts of sorts of groups. There's the patricians uh, and the plebeian aristocracy. The patricians, the really old aristocracy that date their origins back, uh, right back to the foundation of Rome. And he's part of that patrician, uh, patrician aristocratic group. And uh, is anything known, um, so is the names of the, his parents, are they, are they known? And then uh, is anything known in terms of if he had any siblings, and if so, how many? Yes, I, we don't really have very much information about uh, his, his early life. The biographies don't begin at his birth, oddly enough, um, because of the, 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 the lack of knowledge of that early life. Um, so we don't know an awful lot about his family or his family circumstances uh, until he becomes a bit later, though we do have some information about his immediate relatives. Okay. Yeah. And of course, like, like normal, just share, you know, share what's, what's known and what's not. That's perfectly, um, perfectly fine. Um, uh, so what is, is the names of the parents, uh, known and did he have any, and is it known if he had any siblings and if so, how many? Yeah, his his uh, father, following kind of normal Roman patterns, was also called Gaius Julius Caesar, um, and his mother was uh, Aurelia Cotta, uh, again a member of one of the great families of, of Rome. Um, he had one sister, uh, Julia, um, um, and she married uh, a guy called Matt, Marcus Attius Balbus, and uh, Julia and Balbus uh, were the uh, Grand uh, parents of the future Augustus. Okay, um, what was the actual? Uh, what was his name at 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 birth? Like, what, what? Yeah, what was what? What was the name that would have been uh, given to him, and why that kind of sparked that question? As you said, his sister's name was was Julia. So I, I want to understand is the, Julius in Julius Caesar, is that what he was given at, at, uh, at, 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 at birth and, and his sister was given the name, uh, Julia by the, by the parents or something, or is there something else, um, uh, in terms of his, his name that's, that, that's, that's going on, on here. So what, yeah, what's, what, what's known about what his name, his actual, uh, birth name was? Yeah. Roman names follow very standard patterns. So, uh, the firstborn child, firstborn son is always named after the father. So Gaius Julius Caesar, uh, his first male child would be Gaius Julius Caesar. Um, and the, the girls were then given the kind of middle bit of the name turned into a feminine form. So uh, the Julius Caesar bit becomes Julia. Um, so uh, the daughters of Gaius Julius Caesar would be all called Julia. And indeed, uh, our Julius Caesar, his daughter was called uh, Julia. Okay. Um so so no uh no no appellations yet at this at this at this point when we're talking about Julius Julius Caesar. Uh, no 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 particular titles would be be associated with him at this point. It was a very standard Roman Roman name. Okay. Yeah. And it was a bit of a rhetorical. That one was a bit of a rhetorical question. R- Richard cuz obviously different yeah. and different emperors and we we've, we've chatted about this, right? With the you get into the different different titles um with with uh with uh, when you when we have these conversations often, okay. Yeah, what happens later on is is that people start to get titles added to their names, or sometimes you'll find families which uh, have a specific honorific name attached to them. Normally, if someone conquers a place, so uh, you might have heard of Scipio Africanus, uh, the um, general who defeated Hannibal. He gets Africanus added to his name as a sort of addition, and then his family continue to have. Uh, that name Africanus uh, as part of the nomenclature of generation upon generation. The Caesars were nowhere near of that status, so they don't get any of these 
uh, particular kind of provincial associations or provincial names associated with them. Um, the fairly normal aristocratic family. Yeah, and I think you brought this up. Um, I'm 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 certain you brought this this up in the uh, the March 23rd episode that we did on Rome's transition to from a republic to an empire. Another another appellation after um, a military commander is successful in this period is, and I, I'm, I'm, I'll do my best with the pronunciation, but um, uh, imperator or imperato, is that, 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 that's, that's correct? Yeah, that, that, that's a specific title that goes with um, somebody who has conquered um, or defeated an enemy in battle. The troops will then hail that somebody as uh, imperator. Uh, Julius Caesar gets hailed as Imperator after victories in Spain uh, and then in Gaul. Um, but it's not the formal title it becomes later when it becomes associated with Emperor uh, in how we think about it. And of course, it gives us uh, our, our conception of Emperor. Okay. All right. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit from the chronology, um, but that was a good uh, kind of side sidebar there. Okay, so so as we're going through the chronology here of his life, um, what's known about his education, uh, if anything, and when he arrives in uh, in Rome? Well, he family would have moved um, between the estates in Rome on a fairly regular basis. His family are, uh, become very important um, as soon after his birth. Uh, his uncle becomes consul, the leading magistrate in Rome in, in 94. Um, his father is uh, a leading governor in, 80, uh, in the 80s, dies in, in 85. A cousin is also consul in, in, in 91. So as a young man, uh, he's probably moving backwards and forwards between the family estates and, and Rome. Educationally, we know almost nothing about... Um, how he would have been educated. We just have to assume that his education would have been the same as uh, most other Roman aristocrats. So um, he may have gone to school, he may have had a private tutor, but he would have been educated in Greek and Latin and the Greek and Latin classics. He'd have been educated in issues of law. Um, He'd have uh, taken part in gymnastics and games. He'd have trained uh, trained in military matters. Certainly up until his, uh, his 20s, where he probably started engaging more in, in Greek cultural activities. Okay, so by, by, his, um, if, by his 20s, it's, it's presumed at that point he's, uh, he's in the city of Rome a, lo- a, lo- a lot more? Yeah, I mean, he'd have been in the city of Rome for most of the... If you're a Roman aristocrat, you're, you spend most of the uh, autumn and winter in Rome. Uh, and in the summer, when it gets too hot and pestilent, uh, you leave for your, your country estates. Um, and so Caesar would have moved around with his family from place to place. You mentioned, um, and I forget the adjective that you uh, used, but I got the sense that he was a, um, a, a prominent writer, uh, maybe a prolific writer. Um, it'll come out uh, probably in your in your response in a moment. But can you speak about what uh, what what he's known to have writ- written about, and does any of his writings uh, survive? Yeah, he's from his emergence on on the Roman political scene. Uh, he's already a cultural figure. The Roman political elite were highly educated. Um, they were the same people who would write the histories of Rome, who would make the great speeches in the law courts. And um, from early on, Julius Caesar is recognized as a great spe- speech maker. He's a master of rhetoric. In later life, uh, he writes an account um, of his conquests in Gaul, uh, sometimes called the Commentarii. And these accounts were probably worked up versions of the messages he sent back to the Senate uh, to tell them how well he was doing in in Gaul. We also have later on um, uh, an account of the civil wars, uh, possibly written by Julius Caesar, possibly ghost written um, by those close to him. 
um, which again tell us of Caesar's actions in, in those wars. So we've got quite a lot written by Caesar himself, mostly commenting on his military activities uh, rather than on his um, political thinking um, or his activities in Rome. Um, he appears quite often in Cicero's writings as well. Cicero and he had a really rather complicated relationship in which Cicero um, viewed his politics uh, as being reprehensible, but I actually quite liked the man and admired him as a cultural and literary figure. Um, I, uh, I've read this before and I might have the um, figure the wrong figure associated to this to this point so I'll put that put that out there as a disclaimer but I've, I've read before that there were certain people around this uh, period of time that were um, and I'll, I'll, I'll use the term um, the term setting rules or almost um, uh, circumscribing making an effort to circumscribe how or yeah, so, yeah, that can that can work. Make it's a setting, um, making an effort to circumscribe the the Latin language and writing. Uh, is it is it correct that Julius Caesar? Uh, would you associate Julius Caesar to to those uh, to those efforts? You know, you know what I'm getting at with that question. Yeah, and he's admired as a stylist. He's not one of those writers like Cicero or, or Varro who's uh, setting up rules of performance uh, of, of, of Latin. Um, but this is a really small elite, a uh, really small literary elite who are all reading each other's literary, literary works. So if you think of a kind of literary circle nowadays um, and you make it a lot smaller, uh, that's how a would have worked. So any major literary figure, uh, say Avaro, who's writing about the history of the Latin language, or a Hortensius, or a Cicero, or a Caesar, they're always going to be reading each other's works. They're always going to be commenting on each other's works. Uh, and um, they're going to have audiences for, for publications in the thousands rather than the tens of thousands or the hundreds of thousands. Um, uh, Caesar's literary output then is something which was both highly influential, but very much um, part of that literary circle of, of, of the time. Um, and you see, as I said earlier, he's, he's renowned as a stylist for his Latin, which is why generations of schoolboys um, prior to about, I suppose, 1990, uh, were brought up reading Caesar's uh, Gallic War, um, both because it was thought to be a text that would uh, appeal to boys and also because of the clarity of his Latin. Yeah, and I was searching for kind of the, the the way to describe that, and maybe setting setting rules comes across, you know, maybe too too formal for the for the situation. Um, would you say uh, like like fastidious? Is that a, a reasonable phrase to describe his approach to writing? Um, clarity. I mean, it's there's a certain brilliance in the way in which he sets out his Latin, and his most famous. Um, description of, uh, of famous representation of this comes when he starts his uh, Gallic War. Now, if you think that geographical knowledge in Rome was probably pretty thin, you know, they don't have, really have maps that they, they could look at, he opens his Gallic War by saying uh, Gaul is divided into three parts. And then he starts to describe the three parts of Gaul. And then he moves on to the history of the Roman intervention in Gaul. But it's the simplicity with which he takes what must have been an extraordinarily complex geographical and political arrangement of Gaul with its many different tribes and its many different communities. And he says, oh, I can divide this into three parts and I can make this really comprehensible to you so that you can understand what I'm about to do in conquering uh, the three parts of this huge uh, territory. Okay. What's known about um, the circumstances around him entering uh, politics? And can you speak about that, that, uh, that initial period? Well, in his youth, um, he gets caught up in the political implications of the civil war that was fought uh, between uh, Marius and Marius's supporters uh, and Sulla uh, in the late 80s. He's very young at this point, but his family are 
engaged on the side of Marius, uh, and his um, his aunt is in fact married to to, to Marius. Uh, as a young man, Caesar is uh, married off much earlier than uh, for most normal aristocratic figures to a, a lady named Cornelia, and she is the daughter of the most prominent figure in that uh, Marian group. Uh, when the Marians lose, Sulla, uh, as dictator, insists that Caesar should divorce his wife Cornelia. Uh, as Caesar refuses to do this, he stays loyal to uh, Cornelia. That's a political decision, maybe a romantic decision, who knows. But as this is a political decision, he is immediately prescribed, he's put on a, a list of persons who uh, uh, rewards will be given for his execution, and he is forced to flee Rome. So from his youth, he has emerged as a, a political figure. Um, Sulla lets him back uh, to, to Rome um, in, in 80, um, but it's only in 78, with the death of Sulla, uh, that he finds his way uh, back to the city uh, and starts to begin his uh, political career. During that, um, I'll use the term uh, self, self-exile, it sounds like he, he chose to leave uh, Rome. Um, uh, during that proscription period, um, did did he did he do any writings that uh, survive? No, there's nothing from th- this period. He goes east at this point. Uh, he probably makes friends in, in the east. Um, he seems to have quite a lot of friends in some of the Greek cities uh, in Asia Minor, um, and he begins his military career um, quite soon uh, in. Uh, Fighting in or fighting with the legions uh, in, in in the east and getting military experience there. His father, in fact, had in fact been governor of Syria before he died. So it's quite likely there was already a f- set of family connections there, and that would have made it quite a comfortable place for him to uh, retreat to um, when he was in Sulla's bad books. And uh, for everyone listening, Sulla has been been covered with. Um, Dr. Federico Santangelo of Newcastle University in the past, if anyone wants to uh, hear more about that. And with uh, uh, Professor Santangelo, we also covered a few weeks ago, Marius, Marius's life uh, as, as well. So we, we, we could get into the details uh, around that, um, around those two individuals and that, um, that, that, that civil war. Um, so Sula uh, retired, if I recall. And then, and then I think you mentioned he, he, he died in, uh, during Julius Caesar's life. Um, yeah. So, and then Julius C- Caesar returns to Rome. So what, ha- what happens next from a, a pol- political and military uh, uh, perspective? Well, his, his return to Rome was, was not uncomplicated. And that uh, this was a period in which there was a lot of pirate activity in the, the Mediterranean. And he's captured by pirates on his way home. Um, and then lots of myths and stories circulate uh, about this this time. Uh, the pirates want to ransom him off, uh, having grabbed a prominent Roman aristocrat, and he keeps threatening them with death. Uh, eventually, he gets ransomed off. He goes and collects some troops, uh, which he hires, and he comes and crucifies uh, all pirates, um, giving him a reputation uh, as a, a man of action and, indeed, to a certain extent, of a man at his word. When he gets back to Rome in the 70s, uh, he just continues to behave as a, a, a normal Roman aristocrat. Uh, he has military positions, uh, and he takes his first political office in 69, where he enters the Senate as uh, one of the most junior figures. Um, in terms of political prominence, what he first does that probably attracts quite a lot of anger from his fellow senators is that when his aunt Julia, the woman who'd been married to Marius, dies, he, as quaestor and as a serving magistrate, uh, then holds the funeral oration for her. Now, what happened at a Roman funeral is that the whole family would gather, lots of people would gather, but they would bring out the ancestor masks, so they would show the prominent 
uh, individuals uh, of who individuals who've been prominent in the family over the prior generations. And at the funeral for Julia, um, Caesar has displayed uh, the Marian uh, family uh, ancestors. So he shows off the connection uh, between Julia and Marius, and therefore between Marius and himself. And this is uh, um, a mere... Um, 12 years since since the civil war so it's really a uh, a bone of contention it's it's an open wound in in roman society at this point and he's advertising his connection to the losing side so can you speak about uh and you may have to infer a bit but why do you think he did that? And was there any risks in uh, in him doing that? Roman politics has been animated by two things uh, at this point. One is um, a his personal ambition uh, and the characters involved. Um, so Marius and Sulla fell out of a personal ambition. And another is a, a view of how the Roman state should be governed and what the purposes of, of uh, Roman government should be. So uh, on one side of this very loose ideological divide, there were those who thought that the Senate and the senators and the traditional aristocracies of Rome were the people who should make all the decisions and who should be in charge, and the state should be run basically for their benefit. On the other side, a side that gets associated with the Marians uh, and with a group which we call popular politicians, uh, there is a thought that Rome should be run for the benefit of the citizenry as a whole, although the political hierarchy would be maintained. So what uh, Caesar is doing here is he's advertising his popular credentials. He's advertising that he represents um, the political groupings and political ideologies that would be behind Marius. And for those people who had supported Marius uh, in the Civil War and who now had no uh, kind of political constituency, he's offering himself up as a potential leader of that former group. Now, obviously, the political risk is that those who are in power at this time, those who have been put in positions by Sulla, are going to take against him and see him as a potential enemy. And certainly he would have lost some friends for that. Though immediately afterwards, uh, he's uh, sent to Spain, uh, where he takes up a provincial um, position. So it's not actually deflecting from his his, his immediate career. Okay. Um, do you want to continue then um, from the Iberian Peninsula? Would that be the, the next logical spot to go? Yeah, and he's still quite a junior figure, so he goes out uh, to to Spain as uh, um, an official there, an official probably with primarily financial duties supporting the governors. And we don't know very much about what happens in in Spain, other than the fact we have a story of him going to a former Carthaginian town called Gades. And in Gades, there's uh, uh, he finds a statue of uh, Alexander the Great. And there's a story of him bursting into tears uh, and seeing this statue uh, because Alexander has achieved so much uh, by Caesar's age and Caesar sees himself as having achieved so little in that time. And what's interesting about this, whether the story is true or, or uh, part of the kind of myth-making around Caesar, is the ambition that is associated with Caesar. So he has an ambition on a level of Alexander the Great to make himself... Uh, a world historical figure. Okay, and um, and then what? So what? 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 Uh, what's the kind of the main um, his time in in the Iberian Peninsula? How long was he there? What? Uh, what? What? What was? It, what was his title? Because I think you mentioned that he was still considered a fairly um, a junior member of the of the military and. Uh, and, and, and is there any um, key events that you want to highlight while he was during his time in the Iberian Peninsula? 
We know very little about it. He would have been a pro-Quaestor, which is a, a kind of assistant to, to the governor. He'd probably have had uh, financial duties. He'd have been supervising the collection of taxes. Um, he may have been holding court in various um, in various towns in, in, in Iberia. He does seem to develop connections in Iberia at this point. He does seem to make friendships. He does make friendships wherever he goes. And uh, he's only there for a year, though he does actually go back again in, in 62 to be governor himself. Um, but he's, again, this is one of the remarkable things about Caesar. At this point, there is nothing that is particularly remarkable. There's nothing that actually points to him having the a stunning career that he's, he's like to have. Okay, so you mentioned he's governor in uh, in the Iberian Peninsula. Um, so so with that area, would that have been a province of of Rome, uh, still called Hispania at that at that point in time, or something else? There are several provinces. Uh, the the peninsula um, of, of Iberia is divided up into Upper and Lower Spain. Uh, uh, upper and lower Hispania at, at, at this point. Um, so some of those are kind of military active provinces. Some of those are more coastal areas in lower Spain uh, are rich towns um, from which the Romans are extracting as much taxes as, as they possibly can. So uh, so let's let's work our way then um, past that that point in time. So can you speak about how how um, how long he was in the can you speak about what occurs after his um, uh, tenure in in um, in Hispania? So so uh, what occurs um, from a material perspective after that? Does he come back to to this to to to, to the city of Rome the, in the Italian peninsula or something else? Yeah. So after his first period in Spain in, in 69 to 68, he comes back to Rome, he gets remarried, uh, his uh, first wife had died in, in 69, and he, he gets re remarried in 67. Uh, and he then follows a fairly standard uh, pattern of uh, advancement in a Roman political career. He uh, becomes uh, a magistracy called the Cural Edile. Uh, they put on games in Rome, and that's a really popular uh, activity because it wins you lots of friends. But the really big thing that happens in uh, the 60s is the conspiracy of Catiline. And to get some background to this, Catiline is a prominent Roman aristocratic figure. He gets defeated in consular elections, and he thinks that's a bit unfair. So he decides he's going to launch a revolution and uh, kill the consul, who is Cicero, uh, and establish himself and his friends in, in charge of Rome. He's discovered, his friends are arrested, he flees to Rome, raises an army, and he's eventually uh, killed in, in battle. But Caesar becomes important uh, when the Senate discuss what's going to happen to the friends of Catiline who have been arrested. And there are two plans uh, afoot. One is that they should be summarily executed as a danger to the state. And Caesar's plan is that they should be arrested, put in prison, and then uh, put on trial. Um, what Caesar is doing here is he is defending the rights of the Roman people. And the Roman people are... Uh, worried about senators and magistrates who might uh, overthrow the civil, the civil rights and do things like summarily arrest individuals and execute them. So he's standing up for the Roman constitution against the powers of the senatorial elite. Um, and this leads again to a break between Caesar and uh, several members of those elite, some of whom want to charge Caesar with treason as well and, and uh, get rid of him. Probably fortunately for Caesar, he, he then goes off back to Spain in 62, uh, where he's uh, governor again uh, for a, uh, a year before he comes back to Rome uh, in uh, 60 to stand for the consulship. Okay, so then what, what, what happens then? So he's back in Rome um, it's you said this 60 was it when he's standing for the, the consulship? Yeah. 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 Okay. So does he, is he successful in that endeavor? Yeah. Well, 60 is again, a, a year of political strife uh, in Rome and, uh, there's a complicated political dance going on. The two most prominent figures in Rome at the time are Pompey, Pompey the Great, uh, and a guy called Crassus. 
Uh, now, Pompey has just come back from uh, a highly successful campaign in the East where he conquers most of the eastern provinces of the Eastern Mediterranean. And when he comes back, the Senate are not terribly happy with him for a whole series of reasons. And they're scrutinizing uh, his settlement of the East and they're making problems for him. Crassus also has allies in Asia Minor uh, who he's trying to negotiate tax contracts for and the Senate are opposing that. So what happens in 60 is that Crassus and Pompey come into alliance with Caesar. And Caesar's election as consul 459 is on the basis that he will deliver what Pompey and Crassus uh, want in the face of the opposition of the Senate. So his oppositional stance there is used by the two greatest men of the age in order to drive through their political needs. And that, in turn, raises Caesar's status and his, his power. And I believe it's a uh, more of an informal um, uh, concept, um, but, it, it, but, it's, but the phrase is used a lot in contemporary times, the first triumvirate. So at this point in time, is, is when, when, when people are talking about Julius Caesar, Pompey and Crassus, is that the first, does the first triumvirate exist? Well, triumvirate is an interesting word. It's used uh, in strictly legal terms for the alliance uh, at the end of the Republic between Octavian Antony and Lepidus, which is a triumvirate and his magisterial arrangement. But people call this informal political alliance a triumvirate. Mostly modern scholars do that. Um, but uh, people like Cicero call it a three-headed hydra, a three-headed monster, um, which is a threatening to over overwhelm the state. Uh, and certainly they, were, they uh, ran quite close in legal terms. The consulship was always a collegial position, so there was always another consul. And the other consul at the time was a, a guy called Bibulus. Uh, and um, Bibulus had the power to veto the consular acts of, of Caesar. So Caesar and Pompey simply lock Bibulus in his house by putting an armed guard outside, uh, so he can't interfere with what Caesar's doing. So uh, although a year would normally be named after the consuls, so uh, 59 would have been called the year of uh, Caesar Bibulus, uh, in the satirical writings of the time, it was called the year of Julius and Caesar because Bibulus was uh, more or less invisible, locked away in his house at that point. So yeah, these three guys were pretty much in control of Rome and Rome's politics for the uh, length of that year. Okay, so do people... Uh... Do, do scholars ever refer to it as a triumvirate in in in, in this do, initial stage? It's a very informal, okay. informal usage at this point. Okay. Okay. Um, all right. So. All right. So let. So what? Uh, so he was consul in what? What year did you say, Richard? Fifty nine. Fifty nine. Okay. And did he end up pushing that um, uh, that piece of? It's probably um, you know. Uh, Possibly the uh, not not quite the exact term, or it could be anachronistic, but the that piece of legislation or that policy did he push that through? He delivered, yeah, he delivered for Pompey. He, laws were passed that uh, settled Pompey's uh, interests in the east to give land to Pompey's soldiers. Crassus got his tax contract sorted up, uh, and Julius Caesar extracted from this a, a prominent governorship. Um, that would take him away from Rome and give him military military responsibilities. Okay, so let's go. Let's go there then. And can, uh, um, is it is is this the point where you where you think in the kind of the chronology it's it's smooth to work work uh, our way into the 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 Gallic Wars? This is where the Gallic Wars start. He, he's made governor initially of Cisalpine Gaul, which is the Gaul on the Italian side of the Alps, so essentially northern uh, northern Italy in the plain of Lombardy. Um, but very soon, uh, he gets that power extended to Transalpine Gaul, uh, the Gaul which is now in, in modern uh, France, northern France. So it's a fairly uh, unspecified territory because they don't have very much knowledge of it. Uh, and from 58, he engages in a massive and rapid period of conquest and imperial expansion into uh, what is now uh, modern France. Okay. And uh, if you were, because that, that's um, probably a lot of events happened. And um, 
how many years did the the Gallic Wars uh, occur in this period that we're speaking in this specific period with Caesar when he was um, when he was a military leader? Well, it, the, the, the start off in starting in, in fifty eight leads to almost ten years of, of conquest, and then divided into broad phases. So the first three years or so, he is conquering Gallic territory. Um, defeating all the Gallic tribes, bringing them into a, a, a Roman province. Um, after around about 55, 54, most of Gaul is, is conquered. Uh, and then he extends out by a, a brief visit to Britain, or two brief visits to Britain. Uh, he crosses the Rhine into Germany. He engages with some of the German tribes who are on the Gallic side uh, of the Rhine. And then in 52, he faces an enormous rebellion uh, the rebellion of Vercingetorix, um, which culminates in, in the siege, siege of Alessia, which is the centerpiece of Caesar's uh, Gallic War. By 52, uh, resistance in Gaul is crushed, and the whole of Gaul is now under Roman control. Okay, so 52, um, the the area or areas that you're speaking about become under Roman control. So what... Uh, what happens with, with Caesar uh, at, at this point in time? One of the things to understand about Roman conquest, it's not just an accumulation of territory. Um, this has made Caesar into a great man. It's made into a very wealthy man. Uh, the whole process of Roman conquest, it involves seizing of territory, but also the seizing of goods and people. Very large numbers of Gauls were enslaved. Uh, they were then sold onto the slave markets and transported to Rome and possibly to elsewhere as well. Lots of the towns and cities of Gaul were sacked. We have a figure of 800 cities destroyed. Uh, might be an exaggeration, but it gives you some idea of the number of towns which were sacked. This made the soldiers wealthy. It made Caesar very wealthy. It gave him the ability to um, reward those who served with him, officers as well as men to uh, pay off his accumulated debts, to lend money to individuals in Rome, to make a network of friends and political relationships, which made him himself one of the great men in Rome. So whereas in 59, he'd been very much uh, the third figure, the third most important figure in that alliance of three men, um, as the conquest of Gaul progresses, he becomes more and more important, more and more powerful. Crassus dies in 53 in, in, in the east uh, when he was defeated by the Parthians. So by 49, um, uh, well, uh, beginning of 49, the two most important figures in the Roman world are Julius Caesar and Pompey the Great. The Gallic Wars, the, the reason for them starting, uh, do scholars believe them to be um, predatory on Rome, Rome's part? Um, or is, is, there, is there strong justification for them starting in terms of uh, the, R Rome's own safety as a state? Well, the Romans always think that, um, or always justify the wars by uh, identifying a risk uh, either to Rome or to one of Rome's um, allies in the uh, in a military engagement. Um, and so for Ro the Romans, wars are nearly always justified uh, through that identification of the risks. So the first Roman, the first of Caesar's engagement are against a migratory tribe whom Caesar sees as a threat to a Roman territory in uh, what was southern Gaul. It's quite clear, though, that he's looking for reasons to fight. He's looking for reasons to extend Roman power. And once he starts to extend Roman power, he then finds a reason to move on to the next tribe and the next tribe and the next tribe. Uh, and so the conquest, however justified, is predatory. Um, the solution to any perceived problem uh, that the Romans see is to invade, to take over, and to strip it of uh, any movable wealth. Okay. So... I believe you mentioned Pompey is uh, out of the out of the three. So Pompey's still in 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 the picture. So how do we go from the the completion of the Gallic Wars to Caesar um, beginning a civil war 
with with uh, within Rome. Pompey was by was had been for a generation the greatest man in, in Rome. While Caesar was away in Gaul, there was violence in Rome, and uh, Pompey's political position was enhanced by his suppression of, of that violence. So Pompey is the dominant figure in Rome. He's the figure to be in the Senate returning uh, further leadership. Caesar is, however, a, a great man. He's got many enemies in Rome. When he's coming to the end of his, his uh, governorship in, in, in Gaul, he has to consider what he is going to do next. Now, if he comes back to Rome, it's quite possible that his enemies in the Senate would try him for crimes. Uh, as yet uh, unspecified, possibly crimes of uh, making war against the Gauls without good reason, uh, possibly other sorts of, of political crimes or, or, or corruption. And so he wants to ensure uh, a measure of political security uh, following the, his, his governorship. And he's going to do that, or seeks to do that, by holding a consulship. To hold a consulship, you have to uh, lay down your uh, command uh, and stand for election. And they reach an impasse. The Senate demand that Caesar behaves constitutionally and lays down his command and stands for the election to the consulship. But Caesar knows that that would uh, lay him open to uh, prosecution. He's unwilling to risk his career, his life, and his supporters uh, by making himself vulnerable and regarding himself as one of the greatest men of his age, he doesn't quite see why, why he should. Pompey wants Caesar to put himself under Pompey's protection. Uh, Pompey says he will guarantee Caesar's safety. But at that point, there is a lack of trust between the two men. Pompey had married uh, Caesar's daughter, but she had died in, in 55, so the family link between the two uh, had, had dissolved. Clearly, there is a level of personal antipathy, a level of personal distrust, um, and Caesar could not see a way uh, to being secure under Pompey's um, hegemony or Pompey's um, protection. Okay. And uh, and I want to make sure that um, my my previous question is is, is reasonable uh, was reasonable as well. Do skull, so let's let's go to the let's go to the uh, the the um, kind of the pivotal point that scholars believe that this civil war be, began. Can you describe it and do and and as part of your response, can you can you? Uh, explain if if you believe um, Caesar war, uh, Julius Caesar started that war. The whole position gets very complicated at this point. Um, Caesar's trying to get his allies in in Rome to defend his position and to pass a law or to pass measures that would allow him to become consul without laying down his power and to ensure his his security. Negotiations are ongoing with uh, the Senate. These get really fraught, really difficult, uh, and it's clear that Rome is heading towards a uh, conflict between the two. Uh, and there's a vote in the Senate uh, as to whether the two centres of power, the Pompeians and the Caesarians, should reconcile and come to a peaceful settlement, or whether um, Caesar should um, uh, give in to, to Pompey. Um, the senatorial majority vote for reconciliation by in enormous terms. Only 22 uh, vote for conflict, but those 22 are the most influential. As a result of the, the ongoing conflict, several senators flee Rome in order to join Caesar in, in Gaul. At this point, Caesar has moved his legions from uh, across the Alps and is now camped in northern Italy and is on the borders uh, of his province. What separates Caesar's territory uh, from Rome is the Rubicon, a really small river in uh, northern Italy. Now, Caesar knows that if he crosses the river, he has declared civil war. He has gone outside his province without permission. He is uh, an invader of Italy. 
And so he sits on the on the banks of the Rubicon. He camps his legions on the banks of the Rubicon uh, and decides what to do. He decides whether he is going to uh, submit to Pompey uh, and the senators or whether he is going to uh, invade and cause civil war. And some of this turns on what Caesar calls his dignitas, or Caesar calls his, his social standing. Uh, but it's more than just social standing. In some, a very prominent German historian called Christian Meyer uh, says it would be absolutely monstrous for someone to um, start a civil war because of the dignity. But dignity in this sense means the social standing, the social standing that allowed Caesar to reward his supporters, um, to reward his friends. It's not just Caesar whose career is at stake, whose livelihood is at stake, but those who follow him, and indeed those of his soldiers. So he's sitting on the banks and he's waiting, waiting, and the senators uh, who fled from come to him, and eventually, supposedly saying the die is cast, he crosses uh, the Rhine, crosses the, the Rubicon, invades Italy, and then launches a lightning campaign through the peninsula, uh, uh, which brings uh, into commencement uh, a civil war between himself and Pompey. Okay. And we discussed prior to the episode that this would be um, the spot where we would wrap up this this conversation. Uh, and you're, you're coming back on the show in the in the near future to cover the next stage in Julius Caesar's life. Yeah, because this is the moment where everything changes for, for, for Rome, for Rome politics. It's the moment we move away from a senatorial model of politics to what we get the domination by Julius Caesar uh, and later on by the Trinavias and then Octavian and Augustus. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hinge moment, both in Julius Caesar's career, but also in the history of the Roman Empire. All right. Always a pleasure speaking with you, Richard. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you for indulging me, Andrew. <laughs> Again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned on this at the start of the episode that Dr. Alston wrote. He's author of Rome's Revolution, Death of the Republic, and Birth of the Empire. And he's author of Aspects of Roman History, 31 BC to AD 117. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Richard and everybody listening, as always. Wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.